Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 19, Chapter 49, Hanged with a Golden Rope One lingers about the cathedral a good deal in Venice. There is a strong fascination about it, partly because it is so old and partly because it is so ugly. Too many of the world's famous buildings fail in one chief virtue, that is harmony. They are made up of a methodless mixture of the ugly and the beautiful. This is bad. It is confusing. It is unrestful. One has a sort of uneasiness, of distress, without knowing why. But one is calm before St. Mark's. One is calm within it. One would be calm on top of it, calm in the cellar for its details are masterfully ugly. No misplaced and impertinent beauties are intruded anywhere, and consequently the result is a grand harmonious whole of soothing, entrancing, tranquilizing, soul-satisfying ugliness. One's admiration of a perfect thing always grows and never declines, and this is the surest evidence to him that it is perfect. St. Mark's is perfect. To me, it soon grew to be so nobly, so augustly ugly, that it was difficult to stay away from it, even for a little while. Every time its squat domes disappeared from my view, I had a despondent feeling. Whenever they reappeared, I felt an honest rapture. I have not known any happier hours than those I daily spent in front of Florian's, looking across the great square at it, prompted on its long row of low, thick-legged columns, its back knobbed with domes, it seemed like a vast, warty bug taking a meditative walk. St. Mark's is not the oldest building in the world, of course, but it seems like the oldest, and it looks like the oldest, especially when you go inside. When the ancient mosaics and its walls become damaged, they are repaired but not altered. The grotesque old pattern is preserved. Antiquity has a charm of its own, and to smarten it up would only damage it. One day I was sitting on a red marble bench in the vestibule, looking up at an ancient piece of apprentice work in mosaic, illustrative of the command to multiply and replenish the earth. The cathedral itself had seemed very old, but this picture was illustrating a period in history which made the building seem young by comparison. But I presently found an antique which was older than either the battered cathedral or the date assigned to the piece of history. It was a spiral-shaped fossil as large as the crown of a hat. It was embedded in the marble bench and had been sat upon by tourists until it was worn smooth. Contrasted with the inconceivable antiquity of this modest fossil, those other things were flippantly modern, jejune even, mere matters of day before yesterday. The sense of the oldness of the cathedral vanished away under the influence of this truly venerable presence. St. Mark's is monumental. It is an imperishable remembrancer of the profound and simple piety of the Middle Ages. Whoever could ravish a column from a pagan temple did it and contributed his swag to this Christian one, so this fane is upheld by several hundred acquisitions procured in that peculiar way. 
In our day, it would be immoral to go on the highway to get bricks for a church, but it was no sin in the old times. St. Mark was itself the victim of a curious robbery once. The thing is set down in the history of Venice, but it might have been smuggled into the Arabian Nights and would not seem at all out of place there. Nearly 450 years ago, a Candian named Stamato, in the suite of a prince of the house of Este, was allowed to view the riches of St. Mark's. His sinful eye was dazzled, and he hid himself behind an altar, with an evil purpose in his heart. But a priest discovered him and turned him out. Afterwards, he got in again, using false keys this time. He went there night after night and worked hard and patiently all alone, overcoming difficulty after difficulty with his toil, and at last succeeded in removing a great brick of the marble paneling which walled the lower part of the treasury. This block he fixed so he could take it out and put it in at will. After that, for weeks, he spent every midnight in his magnificent mine, inspecting it in security gloating over its marvels at his leisure, and always slipping back to his obscure lodgings before dawn, with the duke's ransom under his cloak. He did not need to grab, haphazard, and run. There was no hurry. He could make deliberate and well-considered selections. He could consult his aesthetic tastes. One comprehends how undisturbed he was and how safe from any danger of interruption when it was stated that he even carried off a unicorn's horn a mere curiosity, which would not pass through the egress entire, but had to be sawn in two, a bit of work which cost him hours of tedious labor. He continued to store up his treasures at home until his occupation lost the charm of novelty and became monotonous. Then he ceased, contented. Well, he might be, for his collection, raised to modern values, would have represented fifty million dollars. He could have gone home much the richest person of his country, and it might have been years before the plunder was missed. But he was human. He could not enjoy his delight alone. He had to have somebody to talk about it with. So he exacted a solemn oath from a Candian noble named Creone, then led him to his lodgings, and nearly took his breath away with a sight of his glittering hoard. He detected a look in his friend's face which excited his suspicion and was about to slip a stiletto into him when Creone saved himself by explaining that that look was only an expression of supreme and happy astonishment. Stomato made Creone a present of one of the state's principal jewels, a huge carbuncle, which afterwards figured in the ducal cap of state, and the pair parted. Creone went at once to the palace, denounced the criminal, and handed over the carbuncle as evidence. Stomato was arrested, tried, and condemned with the old-time Venetian promptness. He was hanged between two great columns in the piazza with a gilded rope, out of compliment to his love of gold, perhaps. He got no good of his booty at all. It was all recovered. In Venice we had a luxury which very seldom fell to our lot on the continent. A home dinner with a private family. If one could always stop with private families when traveling, Europe would have a charm which it now lacks. As it is, one must live in hotels, of course, and that is a sorrowful business. A man accustomed to American food and American domestic cookery 
would not starve to death suddenly in Europe, but I think he would gradually waste away and eventually die. He would have to do without his accustomed morning meal. That is too formidable a change altogether. He would necessarily suffer from it. He could get the shadow, the sham, the base counterfeit of that meal, but it would do him no good. And money could not buy the reality. To particularize, the average American's simplest and commonest form of breakfast consists of coffee and beefsteak. Well, in Europe, coffee is an unknown beverage. You can get what the European hotel keeper thinks is coffee, but it resembles the real thing as hypocrisy resembles holiness. It is a feeble, characterless, uninspiring sort of stuff, and almost as undrinkable as if it had been made in an American hotel. The milk used for it is what the French call Christian milk, that is, milk which has been baptized. After a few months' acquaintance with European coffee, one's mind weakens and his faith with it, and he begins to wonder if the rich beverage of home with its clotted layer of yellow cream on top of it is not a mere dream after all, and a thing which never actually existed. Next comes the European bread. Fair enough, good enough, after a fashion, but cold, cold and tough, and unsympathetic. And never any change, never any variety, always the same tiresome thing. Next, the butter, the sham and tasteless butter, no salt in it, and made of goodness knows what. And then there's the beefsteak. They have it in Europe, but they don't know how to cook it. Neither will they cut it right. It comes on the table in a small, round, pewter platter. It lies in the center of this platter in a bordering bed of grease-soaked potatoes. It is the size, shape, and thickness of a man's hand with the thumb and fingers cut off. It's a little overdone, rather dry, tastes insipid, and it rouses no enthusiasm. Imagine a poor exile contemplating that inner thing. And imagine an angel suddenly sweeping down out of a better land and setting before him a mighty porterhouse steak an inch and a half thick, hot and sputtering from the griddle, dusted with fragrant pepper, enriched with little melting bits of butter of the most unimpeachable freshness and genuineness. The precious juices of the meat trickling out and joining the gravy, archipelagoed with mushrooms, a township or two of tender, yellowish fat gracing an outlying district of this ample county of beefsteak, the long white bone which divides the sirloin from the tenderloin still in its place, and imagine that the angel also adds a great cup of American homemade coffee with a cream, a froth on top, some real butter, firm and yellow and fresh, some smoking hot biscuits, a plate of hot buckwheat cakes with transparent syrup. Could words describe the gratitude of this exile? The European dinner is better than the European breakfast, at least, but it has its faults and inferiorities. It does not satisfy. He comes to the table eager and hungry. He swallows his soup. There is an undefinable lack about it somewhere. Thinks the fish is going to be the thing he wants. Eats it and isn't sure, thinks the next dish is perhaps the one that will hit the hungry place, tries it and is conscious 
that there was a something wanting about it also. And thus he goes on from dish to dish, like a boy after a butterfly, which just misses getting caught every time it alights, but somehow doesn't get caught after all, and at the end the exile and the boy have fared about alike. The one is full, but grievously unsatisfied, and the other has plenty of exercise, plenty of interest, and lots of fine hope, but he hasn't got any butterfly. There is here and there an American who will say he can remember rising from European table to hot, perfectly satisfied, but we must not overlook the fact that there is also here and there an American who will lie. The number of dishes is sufficient, but then it is such a monotonous variety of unstriking dishes. It is an inane dead level of fair to middling. There is nothing to accent it. Perhaps if the roast of mutton or beef, a big generous one, were brought to the table and carved in full view of the client, that might give the right sense of earnestness and reality to the thing. But they don't do that. They pass the sliced meat around on a dish, and so you are perfectly calm. It does not stir you in the least. Now a vast roast turkey, stretched on his broad back with his heels in the air and the rich juices oozing from his fat sides. But I may as well stop there for they would not know how to cook them. They can't even cook a chicken respectably. And as for carving it, they do that with a hatchet. This is about the customary table-to-hot bill in the summer. Soup, characterless. Fish, sole, salmon, or whiting, usually tolerably good. Roast, mutton or beef, tasteless, and maybe some of last year's potatoes a pâté or some other dish, usually good considering, one vegetable, brought on in state and all alone, usually insipid lentils or string beans or maybe an indifferent asparagus, roast chicken, as tasteless as paper, lettuce salad, tolerably good, decayed strawberries or cherries. Sometimes the apricots and figs are fresh, but this is to no advantage, as these fruits are of no account anyway. The grapes are generally good, and sometimes there is a tolerably good peach, by mistake. The variations of the above bill are trifling. After a fortnight, one discovers that the variations are only apparent, not real. In the third week, you get what you had the first, and in the fourth week, you get what you had the second. Three or four months of this weary sameness will kill the most robustest of appetites. It has been many months at the present writing since I have had a nourishing meal, but I shall soon have one, a modest, private affair, all to myself. I have selected a few dishes and made out a little bill of fare, which will go home in the steamer that precedes me and be hot when I arrive. It is as follows. Radishes, baked apples with cream, fried oysters, stewed oysters, frogs, American coffee with real cream, American butter, fried chicken, southern style, porterhouse steak, Saratoga potatoes, broiled chicken, American style, hot biscuits, southern style, hot wheat bread, southern style. Hot buckwheat cakes. American toast. 
clear maple syrup. Virginia bacon, broiled. Blue points on the half shell. Cherry stone clams. San Francisco mussels, steamed. Oyster soup. Clam soup. Philadelphia terrapin soup. Oysters roasted in shell, northern style. Soft shell crabs. Connecticut shad. Baltimore perch. Brook trout from the Sierra Nevadas. Lake trout from Tahoe. Sheephead and croakers from New Orleans. Black bass from the Mississippi. American roast beef. Roast turkey Thanksgiving style. Cranberry sauce. Celery. Roast wild turkey. Woodcock. Canvasback duck from Baltimore. Prairie leans from Illinois. Missouri partridges broiled. Possum. Coon. Boston bacon and beans. Bacon and greens, southern style. Hominy. Boiled onions. Turnips. Pumpkin. Squash. Asparagus. Butter beans. Sweet potato. Lettuce. Succotash. String beans. Mashed potatoes. Ketchup. Boiled potatoes in their skins. New potatoes minus their skins. Early rose potatoes, roasted in the ashes, southern style, served hot. Sliced tomatoes with sugar or vinegar. Stewed tomatoes. Green corn, cut from the ear and served with butter and pepper. Green corn on the ear. Hot corn pone with chitlins, southern style. Hot hoe cake, southern style. Hot egg bread, southern style. Hot light bread. Southern style. Buttermilk. Iced sweet milk. Apple dumplings with real cream. Apple pie. Apple fritters. Apple puffs, southern style. Peach cobbler, southern style. Peach pie. American mince pie. Pumpkin pie. Squash pie. All sorts of American pastry. Fresh fruits of all sorts, including strawberries, which are not to be doled out as if they were jewelry, but in a more liberal way. Ice water, not prepared in the ineffectual goblet, but in the sincere and capable refrigerator. Americans intending to spend a year or so in European hotels will do well to copy this bill and carry it along. They will find it an excellent thing to get up and appetite with, in the dispiriting presence of the squalid table de haute. Foreigners cannot enjoy our food, I suppose, any more than we can enjoy theirs. It is not strange, for tastes are made, not born. I might glorify my bill of fare until I was tired, but, after all, the Scotchman would shake his head and say, Where's your haggis? And the Fijian would sigh and say, Where's your missionary? I have a neat talent in matters pertaining to nourishment. This has met with professional recognition. I have often furnished recipes for cookbooks. Here are some designs for pies and things which I recently prepared for a friend's projected cookbook. But as I forgot to furnish diagrams and perspectives, they had to be left out, of course. Recipe for an ash cake. 
take a lot of water and add to it a lot of coarse Indian meal and about a quarter of a lot of salt. Mix well together, knead it into the form of a pone, and let the pone stand a while, not on its edge, but in the other way. Rake away a place among the embers and lay it there, and cover it with an inch deep of hot ashes. When it is done, remove it. Blow off all the ashes but one layer. Butter that one and eat it. Recipe for New English Pie To make this excellent breakfast dish, proceed as follows. Take a sufficiency of water and a sufficiency of flour and construct a bulletproof dough. Work this into the form of a disc with the edges turned up some three-fourths of an inch. Toughen and kill dry a couple of days in a mild but unvarying temperature. Construct a cover for this redoubt in the same way and of the same material. Fill with stewed dried apples, aggravate with cloves, lemon peel, and slabs of citron. Add two portions of New Orleans sugar, then solder on the lid, and set in a safe place till it petrifies. Serve cold at breakfast and invite your enemy. Recipe for German coffee. Take a barrel of water, bring it to a boil, rub a chicory berry against a coffee berry, then convey the former into the water. Continue the boiling and evaporate until the intensity of the flavor and aroma of the coffee and chicory has been diminished to a proper degree. Then set it aside to cool. Now, unharness the remains of a once cow from the plow, insert it into a hydraulic press, and when you shall have acquired a teaspoon of that pale blue juice, which a German superstition regards as milk, modify the malignity of its strength in a bucket of tepid water and rig up the breakfast. Mix the beverage in a cold cup, partake with moderation, and keep a wet rag around your head to guard against overexcitement. To carve fowls in the German fashion, use a club and avoid the joints. Chapter 50 Titian Bad and Titian Good I wonder why some things are. For instance, art is allowed as much indecent license today as in earlier times, but the privileges of literature in this respect have been sharply curtailed within the past 80 or 90 years. Fielding and Smollett could portray the beastliness of their day in the beastliest language. We have plenty of foul subjects to deal with in our day, but we're not allowed to approach them very near, even with nice and guarded forms of speech. But not so with art. The brush may still deal freely with any subject, however revolting or indelicate. It makes a body ooze sarcasm at every pore to go about Rome and Florence and see what this last generation has been doing with the statues. These works, which had stood in innocent nakedness for ages, are all fig-leaved now. Yes, every one of them. Nobody noticed their nakedness before, perhaps. Nobody can help noticing it now. The fig leaf kind of makes it conspicuous. But the comical thing about this all is, is that the fig leaf is confined to cold and pallid marble, which would still be cold and unsuggestive without this sham and ostentatious symbol of modesty whereas warm-blooded paintings, which probably do need to be covered, have in no case been furnished with it. At the door of the Uffizi in Florence, one is confronted by statues of a man and a woman, 
noseless, battered, black with accumulated grime. They hardly suggest human beings. Yet these ridiculous creatures have been thoughtfully and conscientiously fig-leaved by this fastidious generation. You enter and proceed to that most visited little gallery that exists in the world, the Tribune, and there against the wall, without obstructing rag or leaf, you may look upon your fill of the foulest, vilest, obscenest picture the world ever possessed, Titian's Venus. It isn't that she is naked and stretched out on a bed, no. It is the attitude of one of her arms and hand. If I ventured to describe that attitude, there would be a fine howl, but there the Venus lies for anybody to gloat over that wants to, and there she has a right to lie, for she is a work of art, and art has its privileges. I saw young girls stealing furtive glances at her. I saw young men gaze long and absorbedly at her. I saw aged and firm men hang upon her charms with a pathetic interest. How I should like to describe her, just to see what a holy indignation I could stir up in the world. Just to hear the unreflecting average man deliver himself about my grossness and coarseness and all that. The world says that no word of description of a moving spectacle is a hundredth part as moving as the same spectacle seen with one's own eyes. Yet the world is willing to let its son and its daughter and itself look upon Titian's beast, but won't stand a description of it in words, which shows that the world is not as consistent as it might be. There are pictures of nude women which suggest no impure thought. I am well aware of that. I am not railing against that. What I am trying to emphasize is the fact that Titian's Venus is very far from being that sort. Without any question, it was painted for a bagno, and it was probably refused because it was a trifle too strong. In truth, it is too strong for any place but a public art gallery. Titian has two Venuses in the Tribune. Persons who have seen them will easily remember which one I am referring to. In every gallery in Europe, there are hideous pictures of blood, carnage, oozing brains, putrefaction, pictures portraying intolerable suffering, pictures alive with every conceivable horror, wrought out in dreadful detail. And similar pictures are being put on the canvas every day and publicly exhibited, without a growl from anybody. For they are innocent, they are inoffensive, because they are works of art. But suppose a literary artist ventured to go into a painstaking and elaborate description of one of these grisly things. The critics would skin him alive. Well, let it go. Can't be helped. Art retains her privilege. Literature has lost hers. Somebody else may cipher out the whys and the wherefores and the consistencies of it. I haven't got the time. Titian's Venus defiles and disgraces the Tribune. There is no softening that fact. But his Moses glorifies it. The simple truthfulness of its noble work wins the heart and applause of every visitor, be he learned or ignorant. After wearying oneself with the acres of stuffy, sappy, expressionless babies that populate the canvases of the old masters of Italy, it is refreshing to stand before this peerless child and feel that thrill which tells you you are at last in the presence of the real thing. This is a human child, 
this is genuine. You have seen him a thousand times. You have seen him just as he is here. And you may confess without reserve that Titian was a master. The doll faces of the other painted babes may mean one thing. They may mean another, but with the Moses, the case is different. The most famous of all the art critics has said, there is no room for doubt here. Plainly, this child is in trouble. I consider that Moses has no equal among the works of the old masters, except, perhaps, the divine hair trunk of Bassano. I feel sure that if all the other old masters were lost and only these two preserved, the world would be the grander for it. My sole purpose in going to Florence was to see this immortal Moses, and by good fortune I was just in time, for they were already preparing to remove it to a more private, better protected place, because of a fashion of robbing the great galleries that was prevailing in Europe at the time. I got a capable artist to copy the picture. Panamaker, the engraver of Doré's books, engraved it for me, and I have the pleasure of laying it before the reader in this volume. We took a turn to Rome and some other Italian cities, and then to Munich, and then to Paris, partly for exercise, but mainly because these things were in our projected program, and it was only right that we should be faithful to it. From Paris I branched out and walked through Holland and Belgium, procuring an occasional lift by rail or canal when tired, and I had a tolerably good time, by and large. I worked Spain and other regions through agents to save time and shoe leather. We crossed England and then made the homeward passage in the Cunard Gallia, a very fine ship. I was glad to get home, immeasurably glad, so glad, in fact, that it did not seem possible that anything could ever get me out of the country again. I had not enjoyed a pleasure abroad which seemed to me to compare with the pleasure I felt in seeing New York Harbor again. Europe has many advantages which we have not, but they do not compensate for a good many still more valuable ones that exist nowhere but in our own country. But then again, we are such a homeless lot when we were over there. So are Europeans themselves, for that matter. They live in dark and chilly, vast tombs. Costly enough, maybe, but without conveniences. To be condemned to live as the average European family lives would make life a pretty heavy burden to the average American family. On the whole, I think that short visits to Europe are better for us than long ones. The former preserves us from becoming Europeanized. They keep our pride of country intact, and at the same time, they intensify our affection for our country and our people. Whereas long visits have the effect of dulling those feelings, at least in the majority of cases. I think that one who mixes much with Americans long resident abroad must arrive at this conclusion. The End We hope that you've enjoyed this Ubula Audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. There was quite a bit of music that accompanied this book recording. The opening and closing tune was the Neapolitan song Funiculi Funicular, which was composed in 1878 by Luigi Denza with lyrics by Peppino Turco. It was written to commemorate the opening of the first funicular railroad on Mount Vesuvius. 
The song was chosen for this book cast specifically because it was written in the same year that Twain published A Tramp Abroad, and because he has his own adventure in the Alps on a cog train. We included the Swiss Yodel song by the Brit Brothers, which was recorded in 1933. We also included a muddled 1788 piano version of the Battle of Prague by Franz Katzwara. And of course, we included Der Fremersberg by the Czech composer Miloslav Koneman from 1858. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you.